from a actual in-game perspective. Certainly, there are people doing sort of limited edition things and, and nice accompaniments, but not things that were actually in-game artifacts. And I know that we've been talking about sort of logistics and planning and things. And I think one of the weirdest business management things I've ever had to do is try and source just the heads of dolls <laughs> for a project. I, I don't I don't think I will ever do anything weirder than that, but Charlie may come up with something even scarier for me. So, Well, you better will. <laughs> Hi, welcome to the Daiku Podcast. I'm Gary Snow. Today, I welcome the Menzies brothers, Barney and Charlie, who are the creative minds behind the award-winning Shiver and the Emmy-nominated Shiver Gothic. We'll be talking about their journey into role-playing games, the design of Shiver, as well as discussing their newest creation, Don't Play This Game, that is soon to be on Kickstarter. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Gary. Thanks for having us. Well, uh, uh, I'm glad you could join us uh, today, and uh, I'm really, really excited about uh, this new game that you got coming up. It's a solo game. Uh, don't play this game, and it's got some incredible vibes, and I think it's going to be a big hit because it not only dips into the horror that we all love, but it also is uh, like a ar- archival and uh, artifact-driven, and I think it's going to be a big hit on social media, which I'm sure is the intention, but we'll talk all about that in the next uh, little while. But uh, first of all, uh, Barney, Charlie, how did you get involved in this crazy little hobby of ours? So um, I've been in the tabletop game industry essentially my entire career. I started a little business buying and selling um, secondhand trading cards, Pokemon, Magic the Gathering, that kind of thing. And that eventually spun out into a local game store, which I now run in Nottingham. And then that's kind of how me and Charlie, after we'd left for university and were living in completely different parts of the country, kind of reconvened and um, got together to do things, was Charlie had been playing role-playing games with his friends at university, and he'd come up with this cool thing that he wanted to show me, and that was kind of the start of the, the Shiver journey. Yeah, because my background originally was actually very different. So I kind of, as Barney rightly said, landed on role-playing games uh, university, um, playing them rather than kind of like running them or writing them. Um, And then I was um, actually kind of training and going into film and television uh, was my original background. Um, And I ended up coming up with Shiver as a way to um, kind of solve some problems with RPGs that I was running whilst I was um, doing online games with my friends in London and recreate those film scripts um that we kind of were sitting in our drawers and we all wanted to play together because we're all big horror movie nuts um so that's where shiver um kind of came to the fore and i came up on christmas barney saw my notebook and then very shockingly to my surprise said when do you want to make it um and then that's kind of where parable games uh took off um with, with both of us and Charlie, the the idea behind Shiver, did you always have like the name for it, and and or did it kind of grow from those original notes? Um, it, it kind of jumped around the kind of what the name of it was. Um, I couldn't really tell you what some of the older names for it were. I think I landed on Shiver quite quickly, kind of of that kind of very much like punchy one word evocative thing that kind of when I kind of think of watching a horror movie like what do you feel that shiver up your spine and that's kind of what I landed on quite quickly with it so but it was always um, very much I wanted to replicate horror movies on the tabletop um, that was always the kind of the nugget of gold of the idea that I wanted to preserve 
And one of the things that I've noted just from like, you know, playing games, reading games and that kind of thing is horror is such a difficult thing to kind of find that right uh, balance of, mm. you know, uh, players tend to kind of like to be a little bit goofy in their play style. Um, and then, but how do you, how did you kind of like land on where you did as far as the rule structure and uh, like the dice mechanic and I have to say like beautiful looking book, it has very evocative vibes, um, but how did you kind of get into the the where you landed on it eventually? Like, what was the the design process as far as so making that I, work? I think it was really interesting because when Charlie came to to me with the idea originally, he showed me the system and was saying like, "Oh, I want to play horror movies and all this kind of stuff." And I wasn't a big at that time horror fan. I'd kind of engaged with it as a teenager been too scared to watch most of the movies and then kind of not thought about it until we'd had this conversation about this game and started to think about, oh, well, horror is actually a really interesting genre to experiment with in role-playing games. Um, and there was actually a lot of the original discussions we were having was, well, how scary do we want to make it? Do we want it to be really grungy and gritty and everybody dies all of the time and it's kind of quite bleak or do we want to go completely the other end and be sort of scooby-doo with a few scares um horror and where we kind of ended up landing on that from a theme point of view was we just based it on the kinds of games that we saw people playing in our home games and our play tests and Almost all of the games were scary and had dark themes, but always had that edge of comedy or humour to make sure that you never tipped too far on the into sort of a bleak and depressing story. Um, and I think I think that's very important for horror in general. Is you will always get in the best horror movies a few laughs or the jump scares that are almost comical in nature. Um, and I think that really does add something to the stories that you tell with the system. Yeah, no, it's, it's very much like we wanted that kind of slight tongue-in-cheek approach that really replicates that feeling of your favourite horror B-movies, whether they can be a bit scarier, a bit, be a bit funnier. Um, but yeah, it, it's very much, um, I think, what I was kind of finding like kind of with other horror games and um, kind of horror media in general is... Um, people tend to like shy away from like the goose, the laughs and the silly at the table um, as GMs kind of thinking that it's actually pulling away from the horror. But I would argue the opposite is that you always need light to kind of balance out the dark. Um, and it's kind of that's in gaming and screenwriting um, in any kind of kind of creative thing. I think where you're involving horror is that if you don't balance it out, it can very quickly become too overwhelming or too kind of bleak for the players and i think what we wanted this game to be is a game that you could pop off your shelf replicate your favorite horror movie and come back to it every week with a new idea a new game a new story and not get that fatigue of things having to be by design intense um so we also included a lot of rules and modularity for basically tailoring your experience because I think I've said this in, in the books and interviews multiple times, horror is an extremely broad church and we really wanted to give people a tool set um, that would kind of represent 
that. And one of the ways that we've done that is by walking that tightrope line in terms of tone with the kind of core rule book of saying like, there is humor, there is darkness, um, but we're sitting here on the tightrope in terms of talking to you about it, but you can, you can tip and teeter the way either way uh, that you would like, depending on your play group, your play style and the kind of horror movies that you like. And that's, that's also kind of where the, the art style came from as well as we were having to work out how we were going to reconcile this system that was able to tell this very broad range of stories and work out, well, how are we going to represent that in a way that is cohesive, that can do terrifying zombie apocalypse to light spy thriller, maybe with a touch of occult or something like that. And we ended up landing on, well, we're very lucky, in fact, that we were introduced to Ben, who was playtesting the game, and we just saw him sketching some some pictures of his character while he was playing. We're like, oh, those are really, really good. Um, and ended up landing with him doing the illustrations for the book in this amazing sort of graphic, illustrative style that's a bit... Um, impressionist so that it doesn't give a full expression of the thing you're looking at and you kind of get a bit of interpretation for yourself on what it is. Well, it's definitely a beautiful book. Um, and I know we'll show it in a, a second here, uh, but Ben's work on it is so good. And that the fact that he was doing the playtesting, <laughs> that's almost like uh, a little bit too much uh, karma and good fortune that it all kind of worked out the way it did. Yeah, definitely. We, it, it, it also all just coalesced correctly at the same time with COVID happening where everything shut down for COVID and suddenly the three of us had uh, a lot less things that we could do and a lot, lot fewer excuses to, uh, to actually sit down and get something finished. Um, and that was really the, one of the big driving points that was like, right, we've, we've got this opportunity and we're almost certainly not going to have this opportunity to do something start something like this again so we want to try and get it finished and get it out and we did manage to do that which was an intense six month period but it was very very fun to do and as a game store owner knowing like how like games are distributed and everything what kind of learning process did you have because you probably had a leg up on almost most designers going into it for the first time so i knew it's interesting. So I, one of the benefits I did have is I had quite a decent knowledge of what was available on the market and what kind of things we'd been asked for in store. What were the key selling points and features that people were looking for in role-playing games and what were they not looking for? Um, and that, that led to quite a few interesting discussions. Um, lots of things like hardback versus softback and, how big should the book be, um, readability of the book, um, all the way down to the most divisive question that we had to wrangle with, which was the, do we use symbolic dice or not? And that was a really interesting sort of internal debate because it was so core to Charlie's idea for what the system was. And also from a game design point of view, it was the most kind of, revolutionary thing that we were doing and so we ended up implementing the symbolic dice but we ended up doing it in a way that meant that we had already addressed the a lot of the concerns that people had of like well yes it's symbolic dice but 
here's a reason why it will improve your game experience. We're not just trying to sell you dice. Here's a free dice roller. Here's a dice conversion table. We like the the point of the dice is not a access barrier for you as a player. It's to enhance your experience, and that that was a, that I think was a a big win to have thought about that ahead of time because a lot of the questions we got during the first Kickstarter and when we were doing interviews and things like that were why symbolic dice? Why not just normal dice? Justify your choices. Um, and that that was yeah something really good to have thought about ahead of time and i know it's uh, probably too big to kind of like really delve into it but just for the people at home just try to explain the uh the archetype dice pack sure thing yes yeah. so, so in terms of like how the dice system works um in shiver it's a dice pool system so the better you are at something the more dice you roll um, the D6s um, are kind of, all the dice are kind of fully symbolic and the D6s, every face represents a skill area that your character has. So like you have like strength and dexterity and intelligence and stuff and other RPGs, we have grit, wit, smart, heart, luck and strange, um, all which map to kind of different um, ability, uh, different checks that you would make in the game. So the better you are, um, say you want to kick down the door and say my character's like a warrior archetype, I'm really good at grit. So I might be rolling five skill die. And what I'm doing is I'm looking for the fist symbol that represents that skill area. Um, if I was really talented in that area, I'd get a talent die, which is one of our D8s, where the stars are a universal success um, and the strange symbols are strange symbols. Um, so you'd roll all of that, see how many symbols um, you get. And the harder the challenge, the more of those corresponding symbols you need. The beauty of the dice, though, comes in from the narrative aspect. Um, for kind of an accessibility for people who aren't as used to role playing, um, is that you can read the knuckle bones, as we called it, um, of that the because the symbols are designed to be so evocative of narrative and what your character is doing, it means that um, when it kind of rolls up and say, I wanted to kick down that door, um, but I rolled a load of smarts um, instead, um, I could say, as a director, so our version of a GM, you try and kick down the door. You, you fail, you stub your toe, you take one damage, but you see a loose brick out of the corner of your eye investigating the wall where someone has hidden the key. So you can give a fail-forward mechanic um, which allows you to kind of improvise on the narrative, but you can also use that to draw role-play out of new players as well. You could say, as a director, so you've rolled a lot of smarts there, like what what kind of intelligent way do you think your character would solve the problem rather than through brute force so you can kind of tease out role play give prompts and give hints and the dice really really help with that um in terms of kind of encouraging that role play um for new and old players alike i think that's one of the the always one of the biggest questions almost in any game is that fail forward state and you know it's not the binary yes you did it no mm -hmm. you didn't because you get stuck at the no mm -hmm. like you didn't pick the lock on the door type of thing and then mm -hmm. the adventure grinds to a halt so it's nice that you kind of found a, mm -hmm. a, a solution to that uh, do you and it also helps uh, the director, the GM, to come up with uh, kind of a creative way of like getting more uh, immersion in the game because mm -hmm. You, you, you're forced to kind of come up with these things on the fly, which is often I find a very fun thing that happens. And and were you guys surprised um, at the success of Shiver um, in the first place? Or did you kind of like go, I think we got something here and we're hoping for the best, And uh, but you never know. I, I think when Charlie brought the game to me in its like very nascent form, 
I looked at him and went, yeah, this it, it's not something that really exists on the market. There's definitely room for like people who would want to play this. And we were pretty confident in the mechanics. And then once we had, saw Ben's art combined with the rules and saw it on the page, that's when it started to really land and we were showing it to people and they're like, oh, wow, this is this looks like a real book. Um, and we're like, okay, maybe we've got something here. But I, we weren't expecting it to be as popular as it ended up being on that first Kickstarter. Um, but saying that we had already started working on some other bits as well. Gothic, for example, we were working on almost in tandem with the original system because we had already started thinking about, well, if we release this and it does do well, what, where would we go next? And the answer was, well, settings, long form stories, different subgenres. And, and we kind of had, and I, I think this is, true and important for anyone considering running a Kickstarter is you don't, you not only need to have a plan for if things go wrong, but you also need to have a plan for thing. If things go much more right than you were expecting, um, which was something that I had. And, and for, this is advice that you will receive from almost anybody who's run any number of crowdfunding campaigns um, and things that you'll read in blog posts saying that like, Crit um, what's it called? Uh, critical success is as bad as critical failure in some cases because that can cause a whole different set of wheels to fall off the train that you were completely not expecting. And with uh, that said, as far as like logistics and printing and, and all that kind of stuff, how did you have that all lined up or did you once it got to a certain level did you have to go oh i think we need to like kind of shift gears and, and was the game done in in a point that you could actually just ship it off to the printers almost immediately so in terms of prep the game wasn't so the game was almost pretty much written in full um and we had a chunk of the illustrations but we purposefully gone well depending on how well we do, we're going to need to work out what the budget is for art and things like that. So we can't completely finish the book until we know how well it's done. So, but there were some things that we found out ahead of time. Obviously we'd spoken to printers, worked out who we were going to print with, and then worked out how we were going to get the product from the printers to backers. Um, and most of that was working out, obviously, it was very easy for us in the UK because I have a store with a logistical network already built up. So it was a case of, hey, the UK shipment, just ship that to my store and then we'll ship it out from the store. And we're, that's that's easy to do. But working out the US and the EU logistical side was a lot more complicated um, and having to speak to suppliers about how to do that how to do sort of third-party logistics, which is something that we neither of us had ever really engaged with before, was a, an interesting challenge, but we had planned ahead because I think otherwise, I, I don't think you could really do a Kickstarter and say, hey, I'm in the UK and I'm going to ship this to America and not have done that because otherwise we would have been, yeah, so far behind on that planning that it, it would have been impossible. And then uh, you didn't rest on your laurels. And like you said, you already had the pipeline of uh, content kind of in the back of your minds. And Shiver Gothic uh, came to Kickstarter. How, how much later? Like, did you almost like deliver and then like launch your second Kickstarter almost at that same point? 
you know, we, we launched pretty much, I think. It yeah, was, it was, it was within a few months. Right? Yeah. 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 I think it was. So we did, delivered the, the core book a year after, and then we breathed a short, several week sigh of relief and then i think we started preparing all of the various bits we needed for the gothic kickstarter um but that was a, an interesting kind of swap over period for us because we were in this position where it's like right well is this going to be a, a a full-time thing like how are we going to manage this and I kind of let Charlie speak to that really because that was a lot of kind of his decision and headspace about what we were doing with the project going forward yeah so kind of whilst doing the core book um, for context I'd moved back up towards Nottinghamshire and I was working um, at university as a filmmaking technician um, whilst whilst kind of developing the book um, with Barney and doing layout and various other bits so fundamentally working kind of two jobs and yeah, in in terms of kind of like the core book releasing, I was obviously over the moon for it to be funded, but it was um one of those things for me of the slight imposter syndrome of I've n- never designed a game before this point, and then to see it just go to the moon was was really quite something. And then when we started working on Gothic, which was the kind of first big narrative thing to sink my teeth into of a story that I'd been wanting to tell for a while, we got to a point and we're kind of seeing how popular that was and how many followers and once we'd kind of launched um and funded um we had a chat and i decided um along with barney that i would move on to kind of developing stuff full time because it was it it, it, developing these games um i would say and my advice to kind of anyone kind of wanting to develop games when you kind of hit a certain point if you're kind of producing books that are of this kind of scale especially with gothic so gothic's about 320 pages like just the spire home book and it's like the biggest thing i think i've ever written um in kind of my whole writing career it gets to a point where that level of juggle if you're kind of doing two jobs um becomes unsustainable and you do kind of have to think about kind of where your energies are going and kind of like how you can balance it because creative burnout is a real issue and a real thing i think i think in especially kind of in the game design um industry where you have things like kickstarters and patreon and things that are cyclical um but yes so so i I would say like with gothic was very much the the turning point for us for me really seeing how popular it things have become how much of a turning point it was for us having a fan base of like people who were like waiting to see the next thing um from us um and honestly jump jumping into it full-time for me was the best decision i've ever made like it's fantastic it's a huge amount of fun it gets to do what i love every day um but i think for any kind of budding designers out there um start start small build up see where you get to but eventually there will come that point where you have to decide where your energies are going and whether it is something you want to do full-time and Charlie, I have to ask now, you you have a background in film uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, scripts and all that kind of stuff. Any thoughts on a, a Shiver, either a web series, movie, anything well. like that? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a... Uh... Some some people may have noticed in the way that I structure stories when I'm writing for Shiver are very much like a feature film or a kind of large format TV show. Um, and a lot of these are like elements of that. I have 
many scripts in my drawer, like kind of short stories, like I do other prose writing as well. And some of these ideas that have kind of been lying dormant have made their way into Shiverin and kind of been converted. Um, but into in that sense of like we're trying to recreate films um, and TV and your kind of favorite pop culture media within the horror sphere on the tabletop. Um, so in terms of like seeing adaptations of those stories, I'd absolutely love it. I mean, we've been t somebody has talked to us about using Shiver as some kind of horror Jumanji, um, which I am extremely here for um, as an idea. Um, that, that that would be an absolutely great cabin in the woods story of a shiver unleashing various different horror monsters into the world uh, but yes i would absolutely love to see a a web a web series a film tv adaptation of of any of the work i think would be, be great fun and we are we are moving to experimenting with some other media as well because tabletop games obviously are an amazing format but for people who want to engage with them in a slightly different way and are very like into say the gothic narrative world that we've created we want to be able to create alternative ways for those people to enjoy those worlds if say they're finding it difficult to find a group of five people to play a session every week as is true for a lot of people with adult lives and adult jobs um so we've uh, released our first shiver gothic comic on our patreon last month and we're starting to experiment with those kind of ideas and we are going to have some more different styles of media coming out in in the future um but it's is one of those things where it's a it's a time and resources and we want to make sure that we're still providing all of the support and um, new content to the community that we've already established for shiver and all of our games and making sure that we're true to them first before we go down a deep rabbit hole of making a limited TV series about our favorite slasher that we wrote about. <laughs> well, just, just get the cash rolling. Who, who yeah. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and uh, on your website, I didn't see the comics. So sorry if I didn't grab that, but I saw that you've got your um, cursed library of adventures and the art of shiver. Once again, uh, going back to, to Ben's work. And I know, when uh, I was checking out the Art of Shiver, and uh, I couldn't help but see the similarity to the uh, the Hellboy, um, the art of the movie that I book I have, and that's well, not a very good example, but I just love that kind of stuff. And I think, and this probably goes uh, to a lot of aspiring designers out there. People love to see how the sausage is made, and they love to kind of see behind the scenes, and especially when they love the the. I don't want to call it a property, the creation, I guess, whatever you want to call it, the IP. When they fall in love with something like they do with Shiver, it, it, they really want to see like behind the scenes and how it's made, and it, and and it inspires inspires them to make their own games. And I mean, I just I love I love the the work that you guys are all doing together. Now, question: How do you balance it all? Like the Cohen brothers, like uh, they're directors, right? And uh, they always try to share the credit. Um, and but the work, how do you how do you kind of juggle that work between the two of you? And is it kind of fun working with your brother, or do you sometimes like get into big fights? But your brothers, and that's okay. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's definitely fun working together. Um, it, it to me, it's like the easiest business relationship ever because we will just tell each other we're like the other is an idiot. If you think that they're an idiot, you don't really have to hold anything mm -hmm. back, which is makes especially with creative work where like critique and 
like picking things apart is a is a key process to making the thing better being able to say like oh that bit of the story was a bit rubbish like and not having to really worry that like the other person's going to get upset is really helpful and also i think one of the benefits has been that our skill sets are so different um i am like i do uh, some of the creative work but primarily my training and knowledge is in business logistics marketing and all of the 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 drudgery of actually making a thing happen and then charlie's experience is much more to the other side very creative very um very good at as some of our friends have said producing things from thin air um which i think is, is a very apt expression and, and barney are you the older brother Yes, by by like just over a year, very very close together. So. But that would uh, fall into that archetype of the older brother being the responsible one and logistics and the business side, and the younger one being the creative. Oh, I can go wherever because my older brother is going to fix things. Yeah, I mean, I, I I am I am an absolute villain for making it sound like Charlie is just a floating creative and he just has a lovely time writing books, but he's actually most of the time working hard and <laughs> doing a lot of miserable things when mm. i've told him that oh, i really think we should do this a different way after you've done 90 mm. percent of it and going back and redoing <laughs> it and grumbling and then telling me it was right all along <laughs> yeah because <laughs> yeah because I, I do a lot of our kind of like di like digital bits and pieces so like our patreon like i do all of our scheduling and like sort all of all of that out um and bits but yeah that's very much our relationship in terms of kind of work is is i will come up with mad ideas and pepper them at barney until he tells me one is a business winner um and then we will follow it through <laughs> um because but but uh, but i think that it, barney's completely right in terms of having a bro relationship it's like you can kind of just like cut to the quick like much quicker without kind of feelings getting hurt so I think as barney said like oh potential of being an idiot that rarely actually happens it's very more of like i just don't think that's a good idea or like that shard of it's really good but but like the rest of it is like we don't need to waste our time with that that's not what people want um because sometimes i will specifically be writing things that i think i would like to play uh, but not necessarily everyone else would want to play and i think barney's barney has always been very good at kind of being like how do we take that and make that appealing still to kind of like a specific area a specific audience but making sure that it's 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 marketable it's something that kind of people will will grab onto. cool and then one of those ideas that uh we're going to talk about now that uh, you ran with is don't play this game. So what, what was the original uh, genesis of this? So and this kind of began when I was visiting some friends um, from back in my like kind of prime, like friends who I've had like since primary school, secondary school. And we were remembering the time when we all got our first email accounts, um, like school registered email accounts. And basically I'm sure you've, had this before gary like a chain email or a chain letter where it's like if you don't pass this on in seven days something terrible is going to happen to you you're going to die and we were just reminiscing about that and how kind of silly but also quite creepy and scary like those could be and like how intense they could be at quite a young age and then after that i kind of got to thinking about what if there was a entity some kind of creature or evil thing that spread that way um, and passed itself from person to person. But rather than just being a message, part of the message, the recording of it, the passing it on, was a game that it was playing with people, and that's how it fed. That's how it stayed alive as this kind of nebulous evil kind of 
around a person and that's where don't play um this game came from as, as, as this idea of um an entity that is forcing someone to record horrible found footage horror style events um in order to try and get through a game pass it on to someone else um so they could survive and so this is a, a solo role-playing game, so not like Shiver, which is your t traditional tabletop role-playing game, dice and a group of people, but it's a solo game. And and uh, what the, what are the different challenges from going from tabletop now to the solo game? And just like you said, it's a it's a game that's very uh, handheld and intrinsic to the book you're reading. So I think one of the interesting things that we had with Don't Play This Game was we'd had discussions about, okay, well, we love Shiver and we love making expansions for Shiver, but like once you've created the system, you're not re it doesn't really feel as much like you're flexing your design muscles trying to come up with something that really pushes the boundaries. And at the moment in the role-playing space, a lot of the kind of there's a lot of hype and a lot of interest in solo role-playing as a thing. And it's a it's an almost um open open prairie for for going out and trying to find some interesting design space um that we could we could play around with and that that was really one of the drivers for making it a solo game was oh we, we definitely do some interesting things from a design perspective but also we'd have all this discussion about well how scary should we make shiver and the answer was oh which scary but also a little bit funny and kind of balance that line and charlie came came to me obviously with this idea of don't play this game is like oh, i think it should be solo and i was like well why don't we just try and make the scariest possible role-playing game that we can think of and how would we do that and so we kind of took that narrative idea that charlie had with this kind of base concept of well if you were to take all of the game design principles you could think of and pick the scariest ones and slam them all together what would that look like and that that's kind of how we started reaching where we got to on on don't play this game yeah. Because I'd been really enjoying playing solo RPGs and like experimenting kind of with some stuff. But I've noticed like generally in the solo RPG space at the minute, there is this trend of coziness, feel goodness of kind of they are a relaxing experience in a very like gently cathartic way. Um, and the grubby little horror writer brain of mine just went, well, you can have catharsis on the other side, and I want a game that's going to scare the crap out of me. Because at the minute, in the solo RPG space, that's what I wasn't finding for myself. So then that's where this came from. It's kind of, I wanted a game where if I can thoroughly creep myself out with the mechanics of this game, then I can consider that a rip-roaring success. Um, and, and that's kind of the objective is, is encouraging people to create and spook themselves out in a solo um, kind of setting, uh, which I think is, is something that's quite new and quite fun. And hopefully it's going to get people creating very interesting and spooky stories as well. And we see on the screen here, we have a, a list of some of the inspirations. Uh, and this is like, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of like basically that uh, early internet days, like you were talking about where you get these like uh, weird memes and that kind of stuff. And I mean, I personally, that's, I got my uh, foothold in the early internet stuff. And I just, I missed those days because it, it was the weirdest stuff that was randomly coming into you at all times and the weirdest websites and everything's kind of templated now. And it's just not as interesting. 
Yeah, like the, the the days of old school forums and like images that load slowly from dial up and you're not quite sure what it is until it finishes loading. And even when it finishes loading, <laughs> you're still not quite sure what it is. Um, but yeah, that, that whole analog horror feel, and I think it ties in really nicely with the trends in pop culture at the moment of the, the noughties is starting to cycle back in in the late 90s, definitely. And you're seeing things like the Blair Witch Project or v VHS effects and Y2K coming back in as a thing that people who didn't actually live through it are now really interested in as a cultural phenomena. And I think the analog horror space feeds to the, well, there's a lovely, lovely nostalgia veneer that we're applying to these things, but the analog horror is kind of the, the antithesis to that of like, well, do you remember what it was like when you went into the woods and you didn't have a mobile phone? Hmm. Yeah, because for me, it's like something we don't talk about as much, I think, like kind of with that era, that like analog horror of like the early internet, is that it was like one of the first and kind of very rare cases of this interesting phenomenon of a new kind of wave of digital folklore um, being created that universally different groups of people from all over the world could tap in in different ways and then they would spiral off and become localized. Um, but from a universal source. So somebody would, you know, talk about a, a strange cryptid or a monster or like a boogeyman um, in a rather neutral way on the internet, very much like kind of the creepypasta stories that me and Barney grew up on. Um, but then those found a way to kind of drill down um, into kind of local folklore um, in some ways and become twisted and warped by the locales that you're in. And that kind of is, is a big part of Don't Play This Game is this what I call folklore generation of what you're doing because you're going out and you're exploring your local area and you're engaging um, with the kind of world around you even though it's an alternate version of kind of how you're seeing it um, because everyone when they were growing up had the spooky house on the hill that was abandoned that had various stories about it the stranger um, that everyone always saw at a distance that had various rumors from the you know the pathway that nobody walks down because apparently it's haunted like every town has its own folklore like its own little kind of strange and weird tales its warnings um and the kind of fusion of like digital folklore into that and how that has evolved local folklore is something that really really fascinates me like massively um and it's something that i really want to encourage people to explore and expand upon like through playing the game yeah i love that uh, stuff too and uh Emily Zarka, I don't know if you've ever seen the PBS Monstrous uh, series. Uh, if not, you should really check it out. I had uh, Emily on uh, talking about Monsters. She hosts that show on PBS and just talking about this exact same thing. I think one of the more recent ones is uh, Siren Man. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with oh, that so one. Siren but... Head. Uh, so yeah. Trevor, who designed Siren yeah. Head, is actually doing yeah. some art for the game. So yes, yeah, well, we are familiar with Trevor. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. Perfect fit. Uh, so just tell us, what what's the core book going to look like? Yeah, you, you go on this So yes, so kind of... Um, 100 plus pages of instructions and various things to kind of react to. Um, for the, anyone who's kind of downloaded the demo, um, so we have a, a demo that's available so you can kind of test out the game. Um, first part of it is uh, safety tools up front, written in a neutral tone of voice. But from there on in, um, you're addressed throughout the whole book by a potential survivor of the game who has tried to write a survival guide to help you through. 
um, as well as the entity popping in and interrupting that narrator as well because we wanted to kind of give a full immersion so you have a full rule set that explains how to play the game how to manage your anchor uh, which is our kind of version of a character sheet which is all about keeping your character grounded and making sure they don't completely go off the rails um, because of all the horrible and terrible things that are happening to them um, but the core of the system really comes down to the event system um, that's in there so so like many other journaling games um, you kind of start out by rolling a dice it lands you on an event um, and you begin working through those rolling dice at the end of each one that moves you through where our events are a bit different so usually in most journaling rpgs you have one section that you you have a kind of prompt that you react to and then you move on to kind of replicate this found footage horror movie feeling our events are actually split into three distinct moments that you react to in turn to give this sense of escalation feeling like a kind of real horror movie scene or moment um so structurally they play out very very differently each one having something you gain usually something you lose and an important choice that your character um, has to make that may come back to bite you or help you kind of later on in the story um how we actually structure the events is very interesting as well because this is one of the things i find with solo rpgs where sometimes i struggle is that um solo rpgs are made infinitely replayable by the randomness um that they generate through using dice but something i was finding is that sometimes you can get on a strand of you know things are really really high intensity they're really really low intensity for a long stretch and high intensity and low intensity and they don't really replicate a structure that may be familiar to somebody um and kind of a familiarity of structure can really help people create and opens the door a little bit more uh, for people so behind the scenes what the players haven't been seeing is that um at the bottom of like when we're deciding what dice size moves between events events are actually in what i call structural bands where i take that idea of um screenwriting structure like a free act structure that you find in most horror movies um as well as i like, kind of knowledge of found footage films so that when you're rolling your dice and you're moving for events you may do you know, you get your one inciting instant, then you get like low level spookiness, maybe one or two events, and then things rise up, then you maybe you get something that helps you, then it intensifies, gets worse, and then you're facing the entity. Um, and then you're potentially living, you're potentially dying. Your character can die at any point, of course, um, with don't play this game. Um, and then once you're kind of done all, and all complete, there are rules um, and kind of advice there for if your character lives or dies, what happens to your record, the artifacts that you've created, um, which means you can pass your record onto somebody else and say, hey, Barney, I finished writing this record and playing this game. You are now cursed. So then Barney could read through my record. And if he's got the core cool rule book, could go right back to the beginning, use my record as a basis of inspiration and then create his own sequel, his own strand um, or, or kind of like tethered piece of content. Um, that is to do with it. So that's the kind of hope with this core rule book is that through the kind of huge amount of events um, that you can kind of play through, as well as that interconnectivity, um, that idea of using solo role play um, to create a multiplayer community um, of kind of spooky stories and creativity, um, that this will really kind of evolve into something special that you and your friends can revisit and talk about and play um, kind of again and again and again and, and really build up a narrative world um, together. And we are also looking at including rules for work, um, although it's primarily a solo game, of um, what, what it's like to kind of play this as a group, as a small group. Like what artifacts can you generate as a group and, and how do you play 
um, this together as well. So predominantly solo, but there will also be some multiplayer options um, as well being worked into the book. Um, yeah, so yeah. There's a few different kind of facets to the full core book that aren't in the demo because the demo is is very much a linear experience. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a one to 10 events. You play through the whole thing and you get a story. And it has been really interesting because although there are only 10 events, these stories that we've been seeing people make on our Discord and on social media are so vastly different. It's, it's really quite amazing. But in the full version of the book, those events, as Charlie said, will be feeding from this background, almost like event narrative system that the player doesn't really see, um, so that there is infinite replayability in terms of the combinations that you can get, because not all of those narrative arcs are going to be the same. Some of them will be the classic, like, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, but some of them will be like Act 1, Act 2, pump fake back and then back into Act 3. There's a load of different things that you can do there to mix and match those events. But also the key replayability there is, as Charlie said, as you're playing the game, you're not just journaling, you're also sketching, making a voice recording, taking a video and collating it in this cohesive thing that we call the record, be that a thumb drive or a notebook or a a, a text chain with your friends. Um, And then once you finish your game, you're passing that cohesive thing on. And then suddenly this thing is then inspiring the story that you're creating along with the combination of events. And that's where it becomes limitless because once I'm thinking about the strange thing that Charlie drew in his story, that then inspires, in, informs my writing decisions about well I know that this thing might have long arms and a face that I can't really comprehend and then that feeds in and that's where you get that modern folklore element of together we are creating our own slender man or whatever kind of modern monstrous version of the entity that you want to create I really uh, liked the safety tools at the beginning uh, only because I'm like one of those people that's like you're saying don't do this, don't do this, and be careful. And I'm like, I'm I want to go to these abandoned warehouses. <laughs> it's yeah, that sounds it like was, fun. It's, uh, it was all about like making sure that people could because one of the things that people have been responding really well to is like, oh, I love that this is a game that makes me put on my shoes, go outside, and like explore the world and gamifies that process for me. And loads of people are like, oh there's an event in here that needs me to go to my local library and I've signed up for a library card now and I've wanted to do that for ages and never had an excuse. And it, 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 it has so many benefits just beyond the game portion of just like actually enjoying the space that you live in and also being terrified by it at the same time. But yeah, the safety tools we found were really important because one thing that we were concerned about was exploring can be dangerous, but also if you get really into the story and you're mixing reality with fiction, there's a, there's a chance that you can start blurring that line to a point where maybe you're not having fun or maybe like it might not be so good for you. And so we wanted to make sure that although the book is immersive, we have those safety tools up front of like, look, check in with yourself, make sure that you're safe and having fun because that is the most important thing. And then go into that. We're going to scare you as much as we physically can with this game. Well, the safety tools actually were scary. So, because <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh, I might lose my mind if I play this game. 
Huh. Interesting. <laughs> um, and you, uh, these are not special dice, but they are dice as part of the Kickstarter that you're going to have. Blood splattered. Yeah, we um, we wanted to do some interesting stuff with the kind of like supplementary items for the game, and so the initial pitch was like, well, we need the book, and so what what else are you going to have that you need with books? Like, well, standard D twenty poly set is what we want to use for this. We kind of want to have that classic fighting fantasy OSR kind of vibe to it because we don't want. We want it to be much more narrative focused and about going out and making stuff than we want it to be about mechanical mathematical crunch. Um, but then it became the question of, well, what cool things can we do from a product design perspective with those things? So obviously the dice, the idea that I came up with, well, what if these are an in-game artifact as well as a dice set that you can use? And it's like, so these will come with a bit of information about them and some events that you can plug into the game of like, oh, you're you're investigating in this place and you find this. And here is like, how do you react to that and respond? And similarly with the record as well, the record will contain some uh, events that tie into the full game as a like supplementary bit that make the record relevant as an artifact in your game. Um, but there's also some other larger expansion pieces for uh, like fuller game expansions that I think Charlie will probably be best to talk about called the inheritance boxes, which are the thing that we're really, really excited about for this. Yeah. So the inheritance boxes, um, our idea with these is, is to kind of give expansion content to the game, but in a very unique kind of found footage way. So the idea of these is that there are three main boxes of different designs that kind of give you this cursed, highly themed story. Um, so this will be a grouping of new events um, for you to kind of, you know, play in kind of a semi-linear fashion or mucks into the main game in kind of like however you see fit. Um, but what this also does is that it gives you a box full of these handcrafted um, artifacts and items that relate to that story within the box. Um, so if you're really wanting to kind of have a highly immersive experience where um, one of our um, inheritance boxes for example is called the toy box kind of focusing on uh, kind of like creepy toys abandoned toy factories and shops um, that is a kind of like a big kind of theme of like corrupted childhood I'm kind of going through there so um, those distressed dolls heads I have got a giant box of doll's heads <laughs> sitting in my house that are going to be hand distressed and made to look thoroughly evil um, by me as well as various other um, bits of cursed media, images unique pieces of art um, pieces of text as well as um, little thumb drives with you know potentially audio recordings or bits of or shards of video that can all be either like related in directly to kind of what you're doing or you can if you're playing the main game, pull stuff out of that box at random and use those as artifacts that you discover in your other games as well. Um, I mean, the game encourages you to make your own artifacts um, too, but this gives you stuff to photograph things that are already there and tactile, all packed together um, to give you that very, very specific narrative experience that expands the game even further. Um, in the kind of stories that you can play as well as giving you a specific experience as well. And also it, it feels very in-world because the idea is the box is the record of a previous player that you have inherited 
and rather than say inheriting your friend's previous story you could just pick this box up and it's like right i want to start but i want to start with some inspiration coming from somewhere and it's like okay here's the toy box or another one that we've got is is the dig and the idea that there's been a somebody's found a record but it's from a long time ago and the idea that the entity's maybe been around for a lot longer than this analog horror feeling and being able to play around with the time setting the feel and all of that kind of stuff and much like many expansion books for TTRPGs, it's, it's, it's designed to show you the true breadth of kind of where you could go from a creative idea, but also, yeah, that really tactile feeling um, of an expansion that we didn't really think was something that was as heavily served from a actual in-game perspective. Certainly there are people doing sort of limited edition things and, and nice accompaniments, but not things that were actually in-game artifacts. And I know that we've been talking about sort of logistics and planning and things. I think one of the weirdest business management things I've ever had to do is try and source just the heads of dolls <laughs> for a project. So I don't, I don't think I will ever do anything weirder than that, but Charlie may come up with something even scarier for me. So. Oh, you better will. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I cannot help but think that in the back of your minds, if this goes well, that uh, there's going to be a box of the month club that uh oh yes yeah, so we, we we're really excited with the like because we both are we both were sort of scale modelers and model builders and sketchers as children growing up with a with a mum who's an artist so for us like the idea that we could be hand crafting boxes and having that um really nice kind of tactile feel to things that we're making and not just oh, we're going to ring up the printers and print some more books and having that be like, oh, this weekend we're going to sit down and we're going to uh, distress some Polaroids or, and do some really interesting stuff creatively. And even things like, oh, we're going to go to the flea market and see what we can buy. And then we can write an expansion based off the things we buy and put it in a box. And it's a really fun sort of kind of creative process for us as well. And um, I cannot also help but think that somebody receiving one of the books and the box in a simple brown package with no uh, context to why they're getting this would be a fun Christmas present. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. We've, we've spoken to so many people who are like, I'm going to play this and I'm just going to mail it to my friend and, and I'm not going to tell them anything about it. <laughs> And so we're getting close to the end here, but uh, the Kickstarter is starting uh, when? And uh, you also have an early bird goal. So Kickstarter is October 3rd. Uh, it's 4 p.m. UK time, so 8 a.m. Pacific time. Um, so in the morning, if you're in the US, sort of afternoon, if you're in the, the UK and Europe, or late at night, if you're if you're burning the midnight oil in, in Australia, New Zealand. Um we also have an early bird goal. So if we fund in the first 24 hours, all every backer will also get a digital inheritance box. So we'll be doing a digital version of those artifact boxes full of audio clips and videos and creepy news clippings that we've digitized and things of that nature to make sure that everybody who's kind of contributed gets something really cool and special from the Kickstarter. Well, I think it's... Uh you know, going to be a huge success. Uh, it's a unique um, game that uh, doesn't come along very often. So I'm really excited to, to, to get it in my hands. And I've already been playing uh, with the PDF and I think it's a fun experience. And I also think 
we have no idea how big this could get on social media as far as sharing the artifacts and the video clips and all that kind of stuff. So I think uh, you guys are onto something really neat and on top of what was already really awesome with Shiver and uh, that world as well. So, you know, well done to both of you. I think, uh, you know, you're probably, if I'm guessing, you're probably living your dreams right now. Owning a game store, making games and uh, doing all the uh, handcrafted bits and pieces, it's got to be pretty good. Oh, yeah, it's just the best. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, uh, Barney and Charlie, uh, thanks for coming on, and uh, I can't wait to see uh, the success of the Kickstarter. Thanks very much for having us. Cheers, thanks for having us.